Good morning. Please open your scriptures to the book of Habakkuk, or as they would say in East Africa, Habakkuk. They might actually have the vowels closer. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided here, that's page 785. 785. We just sang just a sustained chorus of gospel truth that we have no reason to be afraid that our justification is in Christ alone, that the blood pleads for us, that we have peace, that wrath has been removed. These are amazing gospel truths. And yet it's possible to sing gospel truths and be safe and yet still argue with God. Actually, Habakkuk argues with God. And I'm wondering this morning, uh, just to ask this question, how are you arguing with God right now? What is it, and these things don't typically make it in public church testimonies, but what is it in your heart that causes you to turn to God and say, I don't like how you are running your world. I don't like the way you are doing things. And folks, if we're honest, almost everyone in here has argued with God like that. And the question is, is God in charge of this world? And if he is, then why do things happen as they do? And Habakkuk gives us permission to reverently question God And God admonishes us to live by faith. Because you're not going to fully understand God and you're not going to be his counselor. And he hasn't invited you to give him input on how to run his world. And so when Habakkuk mines down into the depths of the mysteries of God in history and the way he is sovereignly in control of even wicked nations... The appropriate response at times is not to get all the answers. God, God is not bound to give you all the answers. You're his servant. You're his child. You're not his master. And when you don't understand the mysteries of God and the way he's running his world, then this is what he says. The righteous will live by his faith. Is the point where you trust him for who he is. You trust him because he is God. And really, for a book written more than 2,500 years ago, it sure deals with some surprisingly contemporary issues. Here's the situation. Nineveh, you remember uh, when Pastor Matt took us through the book of Nahum. Okay, Jonah reluctantly goes to Nineveh, the Assyrians, preaches a five-word sermon, hopes for God's destruction, hates God for the mercy he shows to Jonah's enemies, and God gives the largest revival in human history. But then Nahum has to go and pronounce judgment with no hope. And now God has already destroyed the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and he used as his tool the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. We're going to use those interchangeably. By the time Habakkuk is writing, Nineveh, The dreaded Assyrians have been defeated in 612 B.C. by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians had already acquired a name for fierceness. You'll see that in chapter 1, verse 6. 
Now, if Habakkuk is an older man at the time he's writing this, and we assume that he was, that means that Habakkuk would have grown up in Judah under the godly reign of Josiah. Remember the eight-year-old boy king who introduced incredible reforms. Matter of fact, Second Chronicles gives us the record that Josiah was righteous. Second Chronicles 34.1 says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Young men, young women, our eight-year-olds, or our seven-year-olds, or our nine-year-olds, it is possible for you to choose right now at your age to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Scripture goes on to say that Josiah did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He had an undivided heart for his God. Judah, now that Habakkuk is writing, God's chosen people were spiritually and morally corrupt. Listen to what God's chosen people are doing. They worshipped Baal on the high places. They offered their children to the god Molech. They dedicated horses to the sun god. And the temple of Yahweh fell into ruin. Listen to what Josiah did. Second Chronicles 34, 3. For in the eighth year of his reign. Okay, this is when he's 16. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, when he was 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem and broke down the altars. At 26 years old, Josiah begins to repair the temple which had fallen into ruin. But this reform must have been from the top down because as soon as Josiah dies and his son takes reign, Judah plunges back into its wickedness. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel call out the sins of Judah in incredible detail. And it is from that context, that dark background, from which we must understand the confusion and frustration of Habakkuk who probably desired another boy king like Josiah, who probably re- desired and prayed for reform and revival, and that is why God's answer to him is going to be so staggering. He's frustrated. He's borderline angry, though a different kind of anger than Jonah. He's perplexed, and he's calling God's ways into question. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been puzzled with God? Perplexed with God? Out of the mouth of young people. Speaks truth. Have you ever been frustrated when circumstances don't seem to align with what you have held to be true about God your whole life? Have you ever gone to the funeral of a seven-year-old? Have you ever heard that one of your loved ones has been molested? Have you ever lost most of your financial stability? Have you ever seen evil people continue to do evil and evil and evil, and it seems they're getting away with it? And are you okay with that? Because I'm not okay with that. And Habakkuk was not okay with that. But what's incredible, if we just look at the book in in a quick overview, is at the beginning, Habakkuk is kind of questioning God, how he's running his world. And in the end, Habakkuk submits 
to a sovereign Lord who is running his world just fine. Habakkuk moves from confusion at God's ways to confidence in who God is. And there are three cycles, and I'm so thankful for this little gem in the Minor Prophets because we're going to walk through these three cycles of complaint and God's answer and complaint. And then the third chapter is a song of praise. It's Habakkuk's resolve and response. So let's look at these three cycles. The first cycle is really in two sections, a complaint of a puzzled prophet and the answer of a sovereign God. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. And, and Habakkuk's going to let you know that he is writing during a period marked by spiritual and moral decay. Look at verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And Habakkuk's opening prayer here expresses the heart of so many of those who follow God. We desire justice. We desire righteous living. But it seems like God is not only tolerating sin, but he's allowing people to get away with it. Verse two, you don't hear. You ever feel like that? God isn't listening. You don't save. God isn't delivering. You idly look at wrong. Verse three, God seems to tolerate sin. The law is paralyzed. God's law is having a little effect. On restraining the hearts of his people. Justice never goes forth. Verse four and worse. Justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's greatest frustration is that God seems to be letting sin go. And so it's going to be very important for us to hear now God's answer. The answer of a sovereign God. By the way, this is not the answer Habakkuk was expecting. This is not the answer that he experienced under Josiah. Look at verse 5. Yahweh responds, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, here's the answer to prayer. I am raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. And the remaining verses explain how fierce the Babylonians are. So, folks, don't think for a moment that God does not have an accurate pulse on the nations. God has an accurate pulse on China, on Russia, on America. He knows them. He knows their military strength. He knows where their confidence is. However, God's response creates greater anxiety for this prophet. Imagine that. Habakkuk pleads based on God's character, and the response God gives actually creates more anxiety. Though Habakkuk was unaware, God had already been preparing the Babylonians to cut a warpath to Israel to judge his own people. So the complaint of a puzzled prophet is answered by a sovereign God. But listen, God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want him to. Do you... 
Can you accept that? God does not always answer our prayers the way we expect him to. And this is where our idea of God is sort of a celestial Santa Claus needs to be broken. He is a sovereign, holy, just, omnipotent, omniscient God. He's not a benevolent genie in a bottle. You have a godly prophet crying out to God and God does not answer him. A prophet. The way that the prophet expects God to answer. Romans 11.34 For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? That's going to move us into the second of three cycles. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. And this is the tension. The holiness of God and the wicked Chaldeans. So put yourself, if you would, in Habakkuk's sandals. He just gets this response. Now listen to the next prayer. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Here's the back problem. Here's the increased anxiety. He knows that Judah is wicked, but he knows that the Babylonians are even more wicked and they're not God's covenant people. So how can you, God, you're holy and you're just, how can you raise up them to march through? And it'll be on three different occasions that the Babylonians come in and scourge Jerusalem. And Habakkuk is not okay with this. And it is here we must be careful how we respond. If we were honest, if we were sitting in a smaller group, perhaps we could share with one another our disappointments, our hurts, our struggles, and how we're not okay with that happening. But Habakkuk's response is exemplary. You know, it's not uncommon for believers when they face trouble or when things go wrong to withdraw and become frustrated and become disillusioned. And then try to find an answer somewhere else. I want us to note Habakkuk's response. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And notice how he's now starting to shift a little bit. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Folks, difficult circumstances should not drive us from the Lord, but to Him. Adam and Eve hid from the one, the only one who could have helped them, when they should have moved to Him. Like Habakkuk, we should bring our troubles, our anxieties, as he says, our complaints, to the Lord in prayer and wait for his answer and folks even expecting and being willing to receive his rebuke and his chastening if that's what's needed. James 1.19 says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. God's going to answer this second complaint in two ways. 
First, the answer to Habakkuk's prayer of confusion is going to constitute the heart of his prophecy and lead us to the key verse. God's first answer is this. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Now look at the next phrase. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Faith sees beyond current contemporary circumstances. Faith sees beyond a Babylonian army marching in to punish Judah. Faith is going to see beyond that. It's going to see beyond this tension between a holy God and a wicked tool that he's using in his hand. The answer for the righteous, those who believe God, whether oppressed by their own countrymen or oppressed by a foreign power, is always the same. Listen, this is the answer to a believing person. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall endure by faith. The righteous shall persevere by faith. The righteous will remain faithful by faith. God's second answer, which maybe at the moment was more encouraging to Habakkuk, is that God is going to judge the Babylonians. Yes, God will use the Babylonians to chasten his people, but God will not overlook the Chaldeans' wickedness. And folks, that should be a comfort to you. Whether you see it in your life or not, like many of the prophets who prophesied destruction and doom, they never saw that fulfilled in their life, so they simply had to walk by faith. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. This is a five-fold judgment against the Chaldeans, all of which Habakkuk is to write down. Look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Okay, so this is what he's asking Habakkuk to do. Okay, on this tablet, you're going to write down what I tell you, these five different woes against the nation. And you're going to write it big enough because it's simple and it's going to be fulfilled. It's big, it's bold, so that the person running, the messenger who takes the tablet and runs, can still read it. That's how big the letters are going to be. So as he's bobbing up and down and running in cadence, he can actually read these woes. So what God is telling Habakkuk is this is surely going to happen. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. See, God, God does have a timetable. But, but you don't get to set the stopwatch. And God has a timetable for your hurts and disappointments and frustrations and complexities. But what he asks you to do is live by faith and trust him as sovereign Lord. For still, verse 3, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow... What does it say? Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. By the way, to believe that, that's going to take faith. And the righteous live by faith. So here are the five woes. And these are important for us not to just skip over because this is going to let you know that a sovereign Lord knows exactly what the nations are doing. This, okay, let's make it personal then. A sovereign Lord knows exactly how evil people 
have harassed you. He knows this. The first woe, look at chapter 2, verse 6, the second part. Well, let, me just, let me just paraphrase. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. The Chaldeans have plundered the nations, and now they are in debt to those they've stolen from. Look at verse 7. Will not your debtors, right, those that you went in and ransacked and raped and pillaged and stole from, Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? See, up to this point, it's been the Babylonians causing people to tremble. But all of a sudden, there's going to be some, a remnant of the nations that they have scourged. They're going to arise and suddenly cause terror on them. By folks, this is just the principle of sowing and reaping. An inescapable principle of sowing and reaping. And historically, we know that the Medes and the Persians struck the Babylonians suddenly and unexpectedly and did to them what they did to other nations. If it seems slow, wait for it. The second woe is woe to him who is covetous and exalts himself and provides safety for himself with evil gain. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. To set his nest on high, right? Like, a, like an eagle's nest, high above and safe from everyone else. Secure. So even when, even when evil is affecting everyone, we're safe. We have enough for me. To set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. And God's going to say, no matter how hard you have worked to provide for yourself security, Judgment is coming. The third woe, woe to him who oppresses other people. This is chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Whose cities are built by bloodshed. Babylon and self-centered kingdoms like it will be replaced by God's kingdom. We're going to look at that verse in just a second. But let me read to you a verse out of Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The fourth woe, verses 15 to 17. Woe against those who shamefully treat their neighbors and humiliate others. Let's read this. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. Why? For what purpose? Why would they do this? Is this some kind of sport? Yes, in order to gaze at their nakedness. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Well, who's going to do that? The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Let me ask, let's just stop right here. Let me ask you. Are the Babylonians getting away with it? I mean, when Habakkuk's writing, they haven't even come in and scourged Judah yet. They're still in their heyday. They are the glorious ones. They have an army that is unmatched. It says in chapter 1 that their horses are faster than leopards. But are they getting away with it? No, because God is going to circle back around 
and deal with the Babylonians because of their wickedness. The fifth woe, verses 18 to 20, is woe against those who put their trust in idols. Look at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. God exposes their idolatry. Now, our our idols may look different. Some of our idols are laid over with gold and bronze, sure. But most of our idols... In our Western world are sensuality, money, and power, but, they, but it's still idolatry. And God has a pulse on our nation. These woes end with a clear and sobering admonition. Look at verse 20. Okay, after five woes, woe, 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 woe. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So it won't be the glory of the Chaldeans. It won't be the glory of the Medes and Persians. It won't be the glory of China or Russia or America. Look back at verse 14, chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of, of who? Of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. That brings us to the final cycle, and it's going to start right here in chapter 3, verse 1. And this is a petition and a praise. Uh, This is not just meant to be Habakkuk's kind of individual response because it's actually put to musical notes. It's supposed to be sung. It's supposed to be a praise. It's intended to be a song for those who live by faith. First of all, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shagianoth which many believe is, is a reference to, to music. Secondly, the term Selah is used as it is in the Psalms in verse 3, 9, and 13. A word in connection with music most likely meaning pause and meditate. And then look at the last verse. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. It says that this portion then is written to the choir master with stringed instruments. So when you sing this response, this is supposed to be sung by believing people, by by those who are living by their faith. It's supposed to be sung and deeply reflected on. So here's the question as we enter into this chapter. How do people of the Lord prepare for judgment? How do you and I prepare for judgment? Jesus said that tribulation is coming. How do we prepare for that? Look at Habakkuk 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Then what Habakkuk does is an incredible, detailed, poetic Vivid description of God's past deliverances. And he really highlights the deliverance from Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. The Passover and the passing through of judgment into the land that God has prepared for them. 
And then after he goes through that description, he then gives an affirmation of confident faith. Look at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Right, so does faith, is, is faith simply the absence of fear? I mean, people of great faith have no fear. Is that a true statement? If you were really believing, then you wouldn't be anxious or frustrated or scared to death. Those are not true statements. Habakkuk is extremely afraid. He's afraid of God in a right way. And he's afraid of the Chaldeans are going to start moving his way. But look at the, look at what he says next. Yet, in the midst of his fear, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith operates in the presence of fear and conflict. Faith is most clearly seen to other people when it operates in the presence of fear and conflict and trouble. Look at verse 17. Habakkuk began by informing God how to run his world. And now look at Habakkuk's humility as he bows to his sovereign Lord. He's talking about the invasion. He's talking about what the Babylonians are known for. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Right? Scorched earth policy. There's nothing left after the invasion. The flock be cut off from the fold because they've eaten everything. They don't care if it's going to reproduce and bring more because the Chaldeans are only there to invade. They're going to eat everything, the male and the female. Habakkuk says, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. I mean, this is, these are dire circumstances. But now look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Here's what Habakkuk finally comes to at the end. God is enough. God himself without his gifts, without his protection, is sufficient. God in the midst of trouble, God in the midst of extreme anxiety, is enough. By the end of the book, Habakkuk has learned to wait and trust in God. I just want to conclude by asking two questions. First, how can you stand before the wrath and judgment of a holy God who cannot look upon sin? Because Habakkuk was right. God is of purer eyes than to see evil and he cannot look at wrong. And if the scripture teaches, and it does, all have sinned and God cannot look upon sin. How are you going to stand before his wrath at the day of judgment? Okay, let me just bring you into the New Testament. Don't turn here, but listen closely. Hebrews 927. It is appointed for people to die once. And after that comes judgment. How will you be safe? Romans 2, 5. 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In Acts 17.31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, which is Jesus Christ. So how will you be safe? How can you stand before his judgment and be safe? Well, the answer of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 is the righteous shall live by faith. I want to turn you to, I'm, to, I'm just going to read two of the New Testament passages that quote Habakkuk 2, verse 4. In Romans 1, Paul emphasizes the righteous. It's, it's three words in the Hebrew. We, we, we translate it, the righteous shall live by his faith, but it's really three words. And Paul emphasizes the word righteous. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, as it is written in Habakkuk, Paul quotes, the righteous shall live by faith. God's righteousness displayed in Romans one. So how do you live through that wrath? The righteous shall live by faith. In God in his son, in the gospel, Romans 4, 3 says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The good news is you can be safe in the day of judgment. In Galatians 3, 11, Paul emphasizes the aspect of this verse by his faith. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, not by law. Listen to what he highlights by faith, for it is written in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 321. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's exactly what he was teaching in Galatians three. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Habakkuk is a prophet. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, the appeasement of his wrath. How? To be received by. By by faith, you can live by faith. So the answer to that question, how can you stand before the wrath and judgment of a holy God who cannot look upon sin is this. You can do so in Christ. By grace. Through faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you safe? Are you saved this morning? My second question is. When you are perplexed, even frustrated with God, when trouble and tribulation enter your life, when you don't agree with how God is running his world, specifically how his world touches you personally, how do you respond? How are you responding? Habakkuk says this, the righteous shall live 
by his faith. Habakkuk will say, trust God. He will say, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He will say, I will quietly wait. He will say, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So faith, despite the worst possible circumstance, faith, despite devastating calamity, faith in the face of barrenness, faith in the midst of unknown circumstances and unexpected change, faith in the midst of fear. That's Habakkuk. And the just, the righteous, will live by faith. I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask, uh, I think, Ethan and Tristan up now, because I have asked Ethan to sing a song entitled, Amen. We're going to help with the chorus, but I want you to listen to the words. Because that word means, the word Amen, simply means truly. Or let it, let it be so. It really is an act of either saying yes or it's a statement of submission to God. We have done this in our family even since we have turned stateside. God has allowed certain painful circumstances into our life where He has taught us slowly through tears to bow without having all the details and say, Amen, Lord. Jesus said, in John 16:33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world let's pray